This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, listen, the stuff's inside, but these guys don't want to bring it out. So I drove out here. Normally what you do is you wrap it up, you bring in the car real quick, and we're done, I get the hell out of here, right? And he said, but he wants to come in, you go inside. I was like, and I know there's more people coming in. And he doesn't know that I know that already. So I'm, I'm, I'm just like, uh, no, dude, I don't want to meet anybody. I said, no, it's fine. I said, no. And I said, okay, what do you give me the money? And I'll go get, and I'll get it for you. I said, uh, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> What's going to happen is you're going to walk away with 3000 and I'm going to have a bigger headache to deal with to chase you and everybody else who just stole my money. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm going to be doing an interview with Ignacio Esteban, and he is a former, yeah, retired uh, um, ATF agent who was undercover. He has a has had a really interesting life, and uh, yeah, so check it out. I, mean, I honestly, I just basically start like at the beginning, like you know, like where you were, where you were born, you know, how yeah. you grew up, and kind of like you know, and how you got into, you know, how did you become an ATF? Agent? Was it something you were always interested in that sort of thing? You know, where were you born? Yeah, yeah, I was born in Los Angeles, in, in California, uh, but raised in South Florida in uh, Miami. <clears throat> And, you know, I've always had some interest in law enforcement, obviously. You know, you grew up in the same times. I, I was born uh, in, the, in the 70s, and I grew up when I was younger in the, in the 80s with Miami Vice, right? And I'm in, right. I'm in South Florida, right? Uh, how, how cool you've seen Don Johnson, you know, you're, you're watching the cool cars, the Ferraris, right? You're thinking, man, that, that, that is pretty cool. So that always was, you know, obviously in the back of your head, and you're looking at that, but never thought, I would ever do that kind of work, really. I, I kind of, you know, that was cool, and I liked the guns. I liked the training. I liked putting down these bad guys, and and the cocaine cowboys were were huge back in in the eighties. Well, years later, you know, I go to college. I went actually up not far from where you're at, up to uh, Saint Louis University. It's a Catholic university, and uh, I got my degree in, in political science and in history. Then I come back to uh, FIU in Miami. So now we're looking about the mid nineties. And uh, I get, I'm working my degree in international relations and I was going to go to law school. I accepted to a law school in Lansing, Michigan, Thomas Cooley. And, you know, the farthest thing in my head, but, and I'm seeing the prices, how expensive law school is. And this is mid nineties, a lot more now, obviously, but even in the mid nineties, and I didn't have a, I had a scholarship in college. I played tennis on number one for my school, but it was going to cost me about like about 30,000 a year, right? 30,000 a year, three years at least. You have housing. You got to get your loans for all that stuff. And I'm thinking, and I know how competitive is law school. And some people are saying, man, that's a lot of money. But I already have my degree, very athletic. I was good shooting. My dad taught me how to shoot uh, early in life. We'll go to the range. My dad was a gun. So I'm competent with a firearm, right? I'm athletic. And I'm thinking, wow. And I noticed internet just started, right? This is 1995. Windows came out. And I didn't use it in college, but I said, man, this is the future, right? So I got myself a computer and I taught myself because this this is people have said, What are you doing? What's what's emailing? What do you do? I got myself a Yahoo account, people were prodigy, right? People had no idea what what the stuff what dial up, what are you what are you doing? And, and it's like, well, this is the future. And people are like, no, I don't think this is gonna last. 
I think, no, I, I think this is going to be like, <laughs> listen, I was one of those guys. I was like, this is going to catch on. This is, people are not going to spend their time online. What, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh no, I think it will. Especially when I saw everybody pumping, especially you get government jobs. You, that's why I want to say when USA, that's one of the reasons I went on there because USA uh, jobs was available to look at what's opening. And I, I was interested in going with customs. So I applied for customs, right? They were looking for Spanish speakers, which I grew up in Miami. My parents are uh, Spanish Cuban. Uh, they came, grandparents from Spain went to Cuba. And then after the Castro revolution, they, uh, they came to the United States. Uh, and they lost everything and they have my family to start over again. And I'm fortunate enough to be in this great country and I've done quite, quite well within one generation, the wealth they lost in Cuba, I, I've done quite well in this country. And, uh, it's a very fortunate, great nation that we, that we live in. And I talk about that in my books also. So I work on that and I put in there. And so they need people because in, in Miami, in Miami International Airport, uh, most of the flights, 85% of them come from Latin America, right? So they want the customs officials to be able to engage and speak Spanish because it's easier to catch people who are mules or smuggling drugs. You, you got to know what you're dealing with. And I grew and I grew up in Miami, so I grew up with all the different cultures from South America, from Latin America, from Mexico. A lot of my friends, so I knew all that, and I spoke Spanish. So I put in for the jobs, right? And I got it pretty quickly with customs. So that was something where I was going to law school, and I said, "I said this is better because now I'm making quite a good money." I'm going to have a good pension, right? I'm in law enforcement and I, and I really enjoy it, it. It is satisfying what kind of work I'll start doing. So you start there at the airport, you get your, cut your, t- your teeth into like password processing. And then I make one of their elite teams with customs called the contraband enforcement team. And at the time, the nineties in Miami, South Florida is making some of the biggest seizures in the country, right? You know, you still have the Cali cartel. You still have the Medellin cartel. And they're still pumping a lot of drugs. And I don't like what the Mexicans are do when they take over. They're doing it the school way with cargo. They're doing it with ships. They're doing it with through Florida and the Caribbean. And that's how they're getting it through to, especially in Florida. So it wasn't uncommon, you know, after you and the job, you know, so I was saying, or you're saying back then that's how they're doing it, or you're saying that's how they're doing it now. No, no, back then, back then. Okay, the, Cali, okay. the Medellin, Cali, all those guys have collapsed. And now the yeah. Mexicans, and, and I've written books about, how strong they've got, and they're almost more powerful than the, than the, the Columbus ever were. You know, you, you talk about El Chapo, El Menchos, and I'll go into that also. How strong they've become, and how they changed the game completely, and how we have to change. You know, and I've written about that too in my experiences. So I get in there, and so you know, I'm now in the middle of the drug war. You know, I'm I'm, I'm the front line. You know, so, uh, with customs. So what do you do? I mean, what does that what does that detail consist of? Yeah, so Miami has a ton of cargo that comes in through Latin America, right? And also passengers, a lot of it coming in. And, and my job in the border, you know, border authority is everything that comes international is subject to search, right? I don't need probable cause like I would later when I became an agent, which is a completely different game. So it was a lot easier to make seizures and, and, and make arrests because when you come in, you have your questions, people can be searched, and you figure out what's going on right there. Um, and with cargo side, it's everything comes in, and especially from Latin America, transnational country, it wasn't uncommon for me to see, we got seized 850 pounds of cocaine that was coming in, in grouper of fish that was coming from Guayaquil, Colombian drugs, going to Colombia, going to Ecuador, and then being shipped because within five, six hours, it's in Miami. And the corruption was really bad in, in South Florida, right? At the airport, you had the ramp workers were dirty. You had the longshoremen were dirty. Uh, you, you had a, a ton of corruption. The money's overwhelming. And that stuff was never going to go where it's supposed to go. 
it gets ripped off, right? It, it has the uh, the bill lading, right, where it's supposed to go, but little stuff never go. When you got that kind of fish, when you look inside this ma major grouper, you get a kilo of coke next to a, bro a block of ice. <laughs> that stuff was going to get taken out. And, and, and that was not uncommon to see 600, 800 pounds coming in and get ripped off. And that's what we got. So what, what does that tell you, the stuff that got in? Yeah, what's not getting caught? A lot, a lot. And they knew that was the quickest way to get it in because the demand back in the 80s and 90s and still today, unfortunately, is enormous for, for cocaine. I, I always said the way to stop the cartels, if people stop using the stuff, right? If people got the treatment, the cartels are the drug game, right? It's over. That's it. Yeah. We won the, the war on drugs. The way we won the war on drugs, and what you to know, is from within. From within. But a lot of these bad countries are weaponizing cocaine, especially the Nicolas Maduros from Venezuela, right? You've got countries who are really enemies, they're communist enemies, and they're selling cocaine because they know that does damage to our country, their workforce, the people, their future, and everything else. It, Cuba, was it uh, Castro said it was the, the, he said the pink menace, or he said that was the best way to undermine the United States was through the importation of drugs? Yeah, Hugo Chavez. Venezuela used to used to do that. Oh, he died. Yeah, for Venezuela, uh, Cuba saw, it, but Castro did not want to be called a, a trafficker, right? Because he he saw what happened to Noriega, right? But back in the late eighties, Manuel Noriega, when he got involved, the U.S. ended up invading and bring him over. Uh, the the former president of Honduras, Hernandez, he was a big time drug trafficker. He just got extradited to the United States. Uh, Maduro has been indicted. So I thought I I had read something about. Cuba, like Castro wasn't like involved in it, but he was allowing for a short, for a period of time, he like allowed planes to land or fly through, fly through yes. air airspace. Yes. And then and he and then caught up with him. And then he was like, okay, we're done with that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he didn't want to get caught up with that, but he would tolerate some things, but not on the island because he didn't want to give the United States a chance to bring him in because it happens to world leaders all over. They get involved in the drug game. It's a conspiracy against us in the United States. And we've had the case law, and we extradite these guys and bring them over. And El Chapo is a perfect example of what happened to him when he finally got extradited. And now he is in the Supermax in Florence, Colorado. And, and so he was a very, very powerful guy, and not so much. So I, I'm caught in that fascinating view, frontline, right? I'm meeting a lot of people because we make a lot of seizures. So I'm networking with the FBI. I'm networking with ATF, especially DEA, Customs, at a time where Department of Treasury and after 9-11, everything changes, right? You know, every, everybody changes. Uh, ATF will end up going to justice. Uh, Customs will go to uh, Department of Homeland Security. It would leave Treasury. So a lot of things change. Uh, we're making a lot of good seizures. Uh, it, ones that were kind of strange were like people who would swallow, like the pellets. Yeah. The swallowers. Oh, we would get a ton of that. I mean, it, it is really, I mean, we got a lot, but a lot also got through. And it's really sad because some of these people were peasants, right? They, they would get used or they say, if you don't do it, and these are the cartels, they go in these villages, right? And they pretty much forced these guys to do it or they're, they're going to hurt your family, kill the family. Some got paid. I mean, I found it, the guys who went, let's say, if you were from, you know, Miami or you were from Puerto Rico and you end up flying to, uh, you know, Cali or something like that, and you stay there for three or four days. Like, uh, why are you there? What, what was the purpose of your trip, right? Right. And the purpose of the trip was to swallow these pellets. And I got really good at it. I mean, you could easily have two or three pounds of cocaine in you or heroin. Heroin really started picking up in the 90s with the Colombians, right? And that's, that's a lot of money, a lot of dope in there. 
But the problem with that <clears throat> is something if it leaks, you're going to be dead in plane. It's so pure, you're not going to survive. So we get calls a lot of people are dead on arrival. They're on the planes. You got to clear them up. Uh, it's not easy to pass either. So if you can't pass this stuff fast enough, even when we catch them, we would have to take them to the hospital and MIA and give them these laxatives, and it still takes a while to pass it. These cartel members, if you're, you make it and you're in one of these hotels, which happens all the time, you can't pass the stuff fast enough. They'll put a bullet in your head, they'll gut you, and they'll take the stuff out. So a lot of times they were lucky that we caught them because it, it, it was not, not good stuff for them. And even then, sometimes they still need surgery. This stuff wouldn't come out. I mean, it's 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 really it's risky. It's sad. It's it's horrible to see these people. And this is something I'm seeing firsthand. You know, a guy homeless and I say, "Man, this is the war on drugs. This is how it looks like. This this is what's going on. It becomes normal, and natural. You feel bad because people are being used, right? And they're much. It was much, it was much, much sexier from from Don Johnson's point of view. For the yeah. Don Johnson point of view, it's yeah. much sexier. He's got the Ferrari. He got the Ferrari, which is cool. He folds up. Remember, he would fold up the the suit. Do you remember the, the jacket? The, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he so. had the cool the cool colors, right? Yeah. yeah. So far, your version of it sucks. Your version is work, right? Yeah. That yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of work. That's uh, that's true. It's not glamorous, but it, you you're satisfied. At least you're stopping that from going to somebody else that's going to maybe hurt their life. That that part there. So you see a lot of that. Miami, I, it's just a ton of that. They'll put it in the stems of flowers. I mean, talk, talk about the detail of work, right? You'll hollow them out and fill them all up. That's impossible. I mean, it's really hard unless we had intelligence or a great dog to really hit that because the x-rays are hard to reach. So they would do crazy ways you could imagine to smuggle stuff in. Uh, they would hollow out tiles, you know, for roofing and put a kilo in each one. I, I, wrote a, I wrote a story about a guy. That's what they did. They had the concrete yeah. pallets and concrete tiles that they were... Yes, pulled them in and, and came in with pallets. Yes, it it, it it's that's a, that's a level of corruption because that's not really going to where it's supposed to go. That's going to get ripped off and it's going other places. So that's how corrupt it was in eighties and nineties and and beyond. Um, and things have changed now. And I'll talk a little bit about that. What happens? The collapse. You know, Escobar was killed. The collapse of the Midian Cali cartels, and then the Mexican cartels stepping up and working with the FARC, which has now changed. Even they changed now, and and now they have a different name. Uh, and, and they're working with them. They're bringing the Coke to them, and Mexico takes care of all distribution. They handle from there on. They, they take it all. They don't have to worry about that. You just make it, we take care of it. We go into Colombia. So the Mexicans pretty much are running Colombia and, and Central America. It, it, they're not just in Mexico. They're all over the region. And, and, and then, of course, on top of that, you have the collapse with the communism and socialism that's taken over the region, which really paralyzes the whole country. That's why we really have to keep an eye on what's going on in there. So I make a lot of contacts. And I said, you know what? This is cool. I don't mind doing this kind of work, but I wouldn't mind. So they dealt with a lot of agents, investigators, to take it to a next level, which is what you do as an agent. I mean, you're not stuck. To, I'm not stuck to the airport now. If, as an agent, I get to go all over the country, all over the world, right? Make my cases, but there are probable cause and and uh, and stuff like that. So I, I networked a lot with FBI, uh, ATF, DEA, and Customs. You know, it makes sense since I was ready with Customs, I would just go over as an agent. Right, since I've worked a lot with these guys. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But they didn't want to give up a lot of their inspectors because they know it's hard to fill those positions. So they didn't want to hire. So I had to go with other agencies and put in for them because I, I, it's not fair to me. I wanted to be an agent. I wanted to be an investigator. I wanted to do other things. So eventually ATF was the fastest one to pick me up. You know, within that time, within Department of Treasury, I get picked up with them. And then a year later at 2000, I get picked up as an ATF agent and more in Tampa, Florida. Nice. Which so I, I, for, for clarity purposes, so here's what, you know, because just this is what I, I, I understand. So, and I only understand this because I've written several stories. I wrote a story called uh, American Narco. And and so it, it so you're saying like right as a custom agent like you find this you find the drugs and you're like okay then you're notifying somebody else because and then they're setting that trying to either follow that that you know the that 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 drug shipment and bust the guys is that it because it so I let me give yeah. kind of give you an example I had a what the story I wrote they had shipped in marijuana in these tiles. And they allowed the shipment, like they picked, they delivered the shipment put, and these guys loaded it into their warehouse, sat it there for like a week. Yep. And there was a tracking device sure. inside the thing. And so they start unpacking the whole thing. And suddenly there's this black box with a little light on it and these wires. And they're like, oh shit, they throw it, they run, you know, but of course by that point they're pulling up and they, the, the, the gig is up. Yeah, they bust them like two days later. They come and raid their house or something, their houses and stuff. But so at this point with customs, you're just saying, hey, here's what we found. And they're doing the rest of that. You wanted to actually be the guy to go. The next level. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just clarifying what the next level is. Yeah, because they're, they're customs ins inspectors, right? That's a term. I think it's changed now, but the term used to be customs inspectors, but you had arrest authority and you did everything else. And then there's the agents, the criminal investigators that go and you give them, the, hey, I just had this huge seizure right now with this fish, right? 850 pounds. All right. We can sometimes have set up surveillance within the airport, right? Close to the airport, the warehouse. But if it's going, let's say, to New York City, right? Well, they're taking it from there. Yeah. They're there. We're not going to New York City. I'll, I'll, I got to stay and do my job and do the next shift and, and get some more dope that's coming in because you know what? It doesn't stop. They, 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 they knew if they, they, they factored those losses in, because that's, that's part of doing business, right? With the Colombian cartels, it just they just keep on bringing it in. Okay, hey, they got this one. Guess what? We just got another four thousand in, and and that doesn't that it's it's good. So I wish so we picked up with ATM. But you said you don't know, right? You take a chance. Sometimes they may say the Southwest border. Sometimes you you might have to go to New York City or a big city where it's really expensive. I got fortunate enough. I stayed in uh, Florida. I went to school, like I said, St. Louis University, uh, just north of Tampa in uh, where you are, Pasco County. And uh, I started working from there. And I was fortunate the group I started, a lot of guys worked undercover. Because you can't just go into undercover work cold like that, right? If you do that, you're going to get hurt. Right. I mean, you can watch all the Miami, Miami Vice you want and watch all the TV shows and, and Donnie Brasco. And, and that was also very popular back in the uh, in the 90s. Remember Donnie Brasco with uh, Al Pacino yeah. and Johnny Depp? Yeah, you know, you watch all yeah. that stuff, but it's one thing on television, right? Like you said, and one thing the real world. And the real world is you've got to know how these guys because like I said, I grew up in Catholic schools, right? And now I have to learn this world. I learned a little bit for the drug world, which is fascinating. 
But now I got to work face to face undercover where I pretend to be like these guys and how to fool some of these guys who are hardened professional criminals. That's all they do and make them think I'm one of them. I'm nothing like it. I, 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 I was going to say, which is, is, you know, you, like you said, you watch it on TV and people think, oh, I could do that. No, you can't. They, they spot you in a second. It, I used to joke around, you know, with uh, the guys in, in prison. Like, you know, they we just be walking and they see me and they say, hey, Cox, what's up? And I go, I can't call it. And they just stop. They go, they just start laughing. They go, stop. I go, what are you talking? I, I did that. I did that good. They go, no, it, it's even worse when you do it. <laughs> you're like, they're like, you're not even close. You can't uh, come close to pulling out. And you can't. You just can't fake that. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's hard. It, it's a real, you really have to become an actor to be able to fake. That's true. That's to true. be able to fake that. You have to be good at it. It, it takes time. It takes time. You got to practice it. And it, it takes years. <clears throat> so I had good mentors, right? I watch a lot. And, and you develop your own technique, right? You watch these guys. I spoke Spanish. So that was an advantage. I make sure my English was broken. I didn't sound like that. I, I just came back to Cuba this año, right? Right. So you 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 have to come up and let my hair really long. I think I sent you some pictures. I don't know if you saw them yet. I haven't seen them, seen them yet. Yeah, I'll see them. I'll check them out. All right. I sent you some pictures. My hair was long. I had a big beard. I didn't want to get all of the tats. Some guys have because when I got out of it, I knew I'll be done with it. Right. right? I want to go back to who I was. I, I, because I don't want to be saying, oh, great, I got this now. People say, what the heck's wrong with this? So that was never me. I, I never really cared for it. That, that wasn't my thing. So I wanted to fake enough. The beard's okay. The hair was long enough. You do the accents. Uh, you get to know the culture, get to know these guys. Uh, it was easier to deal with people. If they were non Spanish speakers, you tell your story, who you're working with. You say, hey, these families are looking, the cartels are looking for guns, right? Because they are. And my job here is to be say, ATF. Is to buy a lot of guns, and these guys, I don't want to fill any paperwork, right? Because I don't want to show up in no shop and put my information right. in there, right? So th these guys will sell me guns off the street, untraceables. And you pay a premium for that because that's what you want. And a lot of these guys have horrific criminal histories. So I dealt a lot with repeat violent offenders. I dealt a lot with gang members, uh, armed drug traffickers, international firearms traffickers, domestic firearms traffickers. Uh, I dealt with armed home invaders, uh, cases for murder for hires. So that was ATF's niche. What, what does ATF do? Alcohol, tobacco, firearms. Well, it's a small A for alcohol, a small T for tobacco, a huge F, and immediate E for explosives. So we do a lot of gun cases. Needless to say, a lot of guns. And that, that's what ATF is. Uh, and so I found that fascinating. And I, I knew something about guns, but man, I, I became an expert on pretty much the Gun Control Act, NFA, National Firearms Act. And all the different weapons from machine guns, silencers, pipe bombs. You know, ATF sometimes call it with all the training. ATF stands for all the fun because we would do a lot of shooting. I mean, we, we, I, I trained in handguns from pistols to revolvers. My M4, which is a short uh, short barrel rifle, right? I had shotguns. Yeah, something short barrel shotguns also we were shooting. So we trained a lot of different weapons. And then we also were familiarized in case we come across different machine guns. We know what we're doing, right? Got to make sure and check all that stuff out. So <clears throat> that's what that's what we did, ATF. And and something that's early enough, you have to cut your teeth. You know, what one, one of the guys I worked with, um, he was Puerto Rican, and he was involved back in the eighties in a shootout where he had a Sig nine millimeter. The bad guy had a Sig nine millimeter. He fired the round, and his round went into his gun and plugged the barrel. So he's like this, and the round goes like this. It's like one in a million. Damn, and Hialeah. Back in the 80s. So 
it, it can get ugly and wild. So we had a good time. We had some good stories, and I learned a lot from him and him being Puerto Rican. And I saw how he tackled things and all that. So I developed my own style. We worked a lot together, and then I grew up. And then you know what also helps? Having good informants. You, yeah. you have a good informants, which I developed a lot of these guys. They can pretty much, you, you walk on water, it's that goal. You say, hey, he vouches for you. There's some more questions. It's yeah. just, do, let's do business. Hey, he said, you're the guy. Okay, man, this is what you want. No questions asked. And boom, 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 boom. This is what these guys do. But if you have a bad informant who's playing both sides, it'll destroy your investigation. Yeah, yeah you have to have them accountable. So you really, and once you, that's why I like to, once I had the introduction, I cut them out. Yeah. And I, yeah. I want to deal with the drama with an informant, they can ruin your case. I put too much hard work because ATF is a very smaller outfit than the FBI or DEA, right? We have less than 3,000 agents, I think 2,800, right? FBI has four times that, enormous size. So we we just can't delegate, hey, I need you to do surveillance. I need you to do undercover. I'm the case, I had to do everything. I, I, I'm the, the undercover, I'm the case agent, right? I deal with property. I deal with my own intelligence workup. I, I wear all the different hats because you have to because we're a smaller outfit. If you want to do the bigger cases. Now, if you want to say, small, you don't do that. Right. I was going to say the uh, informant thing. I'm I'm researching a story right now. And it's like, it's funny, you know, you do all the incident reports. You, you read through the incident reports. And the first thing they do, like literally, obviously this guy got busted. You know, he got, he got busted. I think he got, no, he got busted for, I think it was for a gun, actually. And then he goes and he makes them, they, they have him make a, a a couple of meth buys, you know, and just, he's just wired, like he's just wired. They're just control buys. Then they have him eventually introduce, you know, his, his boss, which is the undercover. Then the undercover goes with him on a couple of buys. Sure. Then just the undercover buys and then they, they cut the informant out. And, you know, and to me, like having been in prison, I realized that the problem is like, if you're a whole, you can't let him keep buying. You can't let the cut the, the, um, informant yeah. keep buying because first of all, he's unreliable. He's got a record. And then what happens if he gets busted for something else? You know, you, you can't put him on the stand. Like it was since then you've been busted for this and this, like, and he has a huge incentive to lie and the agent doesn't. So, you know, you want to put somebody on the stand, you want it to be the agent. That's right. A clean jacket. Oh, he introduced me. Here's what I did. I bought a kilo over the course of the next month. Yeah. Or two months. That's that's the best way to do it. You you have to because and, and unfortunately some of these guys have, have uh, drug addictions, right? Yeah. They and they and they keep on doing stuff, they get messed up and they don't they're not right when they're high, right? And and they do stupid things. So those are the factors you gotta get into. That's why I was fortunate. Some people don't want to do undercover work. Not for everybody. I, I just I, I liked it. I, I really decided I, I kinda like playing the role. I like and I deal with all kinds of people. I just told you about the, the variety, but I also deal with the variety of people from different Hispanic groups, different blacks, uh, different uh other European groups, right? Just a variety, a variety of people. And uh because it worked and what I was doing and makes sense. It's based on what's really going on. The cartels have people. They need guns, right? And by the way, not only buying the guns, but I also like, like selling some drugs on the side. What else do you have for personal or for other use? So I buy dope and guns. Sometimes you come across some other stuff. Hey, I have also 
some body armor. You're looking for some body. Yeah, I'll take some ballistic armor. It's amazing what people start telling you and what they do and what else it leads to. Hey, I'm also doing this too. Hey, this guy is also into uh, explosives or into this. Oh, hey, this guy's selling lost cigarettes without tax stamps. You know, we do those cases too, a lot less. But yeah, we do all that stuff. So it really opens up when people talk and they feel confident with you. You get a lot of your friends. And I had everything, like I said, for, for trial purposes, I want to make it like a movie, right? I want the jury to feel comfortable. I want the, first of all, I had to make the prosecutor feel comfortable. And once he feels comfortable, then the jury. Um, do you hear that? Yes. Can you hold on a second? Sure. <laughs> Sorry. No worries. Uh, I don't even know what that is, but here's the funny thing about it. <laughs> Since I'm speaking with you is my wife's ex-boyfriend was arrested for um he had a dispute with a guy over I'm I'm pretty sure I think it was drugs or something and he made a bomb oh no and left it for the guy it didn't go off oh my gosh that's crazy um but he ended up going to jail for it and like he's on like the no fly list and so every time I get a package and I walk out my first thought when I see the package is, yeah, I would too. Please let this guy, <laughs> please let this really be from Amazon. And I keep, you know, it's so funny. Oh my gosh, sometimes I get deliveries. It's, you're not. It's like it's just, it's just there. And I always, I'll, I don't unwrap it. I'm, my girlfriend comes in. I'm like, you're unlocking. You're, you're opening that. It's, it's not uncomfortable. A lot of people get into making these pipe bombs, right? And they tighten them up in there. But it's also very dangerous. If you don't know how you do it right. They can some let the flit too early and explode, so they have damage. It's it's very volatile. Very I, I actually had a, I actually had a friend that was making a pipe bomb when he was like 15, 16 years old, and it exploded, blew his hands off, the shrapnel hit, like he bled out within a minute. Oh no! But 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 he he died, and you know just a kid just being stupid, you know yeah. thought it was cool, had made a couple small ones, and just playing, never once thinking to himself like, hey, this could be it. This like, could be it. You understand what you're playing with, right? Like this isn't a joke. No, this is. It isn't like playing with like firecrackers and stuff like that. It's even you, you might lose your finger or something. You're not careful with it. But a pipe bomb, that that's no joke. And, and then these guys get really nasty with it. Some of them put like shrapnel inside to really do some serious, serious damage. So uh, yeah, so that's the kind of case I wanted to do. I, I wanted to make sure for the jury and for the prosecutor that we had good video, right? I wanted to make sure it is clear. It's like watching a movie. I wanted the jury to see, okay, this is the evidence. Watch the movie. And that's a big difference you see between the federal side and state and local, right? Especially with the local sometimes, uh, it, it, it gets a, a little bit different. Federal, we, ha we have a little more time to take our time with the case, make it the strongest case we can against many people as possible. That, that's why we uh, have a little more time. And it's different. That's why I like the federal system. We have a chance to really make the cases bigger and stronger. And we have good prosecutors. That's a lot of them are career prosecutors, and they really know how to make good cases. Um, so that's what I did. I wanted to make sure, undercover wise, I had. And sometimes with informants, there's always issues with the with the equipment. Sometimes they, they could be messed up and everything else. So they're not professional, right? They, they didn't go to school for this. They don't understand case law. They don't understand entrapment, right? You you want to make sure people understand. You know, this is what they do. This is what they're involved in. You don't want to bring someone who's not involved in this kind of work. They're actively doing this. They're predisposed. This is what they do. And, right. this is, and, and they have the history of doing this. Right. So these are all the factors 
you got to come as a professional, you bring that to the table. And informants are, I hate to say it, necessary evil, right? Because they are the eyes and ears in the street. Because I can't live in the street, right? The reality is I pretend to. Right. And then I go back to the office. I can do a lot of paperwork. I got to go to the prosecutor. I got to deal with evidence. I, I, it's, I got to talk and give a briefing. So it's, it's a whole different world. And, and you just show up. But the good thing about them, even though it would cut them out, remember their eyes and ears, they can still tell you, hey, I heard so-and-so had some doubts about you. Mm-hmm. I, need, I need to tighten this up a little bit. When you come back with me and let's have another conversation with them, make sure you, you vouch for me and make sure, hey, this is the guy, man. Uh, there's nothing to worry about. So those are good things. You keep them a distance, but you still have to make sure that they're listening to what's going on. because That's important because the last thing you want to do is get uh, cut off guard. And, and I was fortunate enough I mean, there's always some hairy close moments, right? But, you know, you, you got to have, and, I, and I'll give you an example, and I, and I put it in, in my book, ATF Undercover, which um, I talk about. And this happens, and I did a lot of work in Pasco County, and I uh, had an undercover apartment in Wesley Chapel. I had, I did, I live. I know, I know. I did, uh, and I used to live there in West Chapel, and then moved down south when I first uh, started working out there. A lot cheaper than Tampa when I, in 2000. I know what it, it, 54 is completely different than it was 20 some years ago. Four. Well, I live off, I live off 56, you know, 54 turns into 56. So, but yeah, it's even further. Like it's a 15 minute drive to 75 from where I live. It's like living in the Truman show though. I mean, it's the houses are, everything's brand new. Every, everything's underground. You know, all the houses look simple. I mean, it's, it's a great, it's, it's a great area. Like, Everybody, it's funny, on, on my street, there's two sheriff's deputies, there's like an insurance salesman, there's a couple bankers, like, the only, I'm the riffraff on the street. So, you're, which, you're not you know, 56, you're not too far from, from Lando Lakes either then. No, no, very, very close. Very close. Yeah, yeah Michael, I, don't, I guess, I know. yeah, I, I got to, I got to know uh, Pasco really well from making the cases. So I got to know Pasco, I don't know how much you know Pasco County, but I, I got to know all the way to Newport Ritchie, Port Ritchie, the Hudson area, even across to New York Tarpon Springs uh, and going to Zephyr Hills. So this takes place, I'll tell you this story here, this happens in Zephyr Hills. Zephyr Hills, people who don't know Zephyr Hills or Date City, at the time I was working, I would say it was back in 2000 to until 2012. And this story takes place on 2009, 2010. So that's, that's, this is the Dade City Pasco I'm talking about. And the Mexicans were picking it up, right? They're moving a lot of meth. There's no more meth labs. There, there's still some, but now they're bringing a lot of the meth from Mexico. They're just right. piping it in. And that whole area became a big pipeline, which, right. which I, I was saying. Is to, I, I think a lot of still drugs and a lot of Mexicans still out there, which this is how, where everything's changed a lot. And this is a trailer. I meet with this guy. He has a, he, he's, he's a career criminal, uh, drug trafficker. I right, had an informant make an introduction. First time me and him are sitting in the car together. I meet him out 301, and uh, we're going to drive to these trailers, shady trailers, predominantly Hispanic, right? And he, he's talking to me, he's telling me his history. He said, man, yeah, I'll get you these guns and everything, but I, I used to move a lot of Coke, a lot of product. I, I, I was moving two or three easy kilos a week. Uh, I was like, okay. So I said, you tell me. I, I mean, he just got out. He wants to get back into the game. This is what he does. I said, okay. Uh, so he, he took me there. He's a non-Spanish speaker and he, he takes me to the trailers and he said, Hey, this is my guy here. He has the guns. Some guys give a heads up a little nervous about this. They say, sometimes guys who buy guns a lot are feds. I said, no, 
I'm no fed. Of course, you got to deny that. You're like, <laughs> you got me. You got me in there. It's over. <laughs> Let me take you back home. Uh, no, that's that's going to happen. So you deny that. And he goes in there. <clears throat> and I talked to his guy who's there, his Hispanic, bullhead, right? And we're talking a little bit in Spanish. He's testing me out, which is fine. And he goes, he goes in a trailer. So him and I are sitting outside in my truck. And I see more people. We get out of the car. And he's on one side. I'm on the other side. And I can see there are a lot more people going to the other side of the trailer. Right. A lot more people going inside. He can't see that. I can see that. So I can see that. So you're going to have instincts to say, listen, I just met you guys. The deal we're supposed to be doing is for an AK-47 with 75-round drum, two Glock pistols, almost an ounce of meth for a little over $3,000, right? And I don't feel comfortable. He goes, hey, listen, the stuff's inside, but these guys don't want to bring it out. So I drove out here. Normally what you do is you wrap it up, you bring in the car real quick, and we're done. I get the hell out of here, right? And he said, but he wants to come in. You go inside. I was like, and I know there's more people coming in. And he doesn't know that I know that already. So I'm, I'm, I'm just like, uh, no, dude, I don't want to meet anybody. I said, no, it's fine. I said, no. And I said, okay, what do you give me the money? And I'll go get, I'll get it for you. I said, uh, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I said, what's going to happen is you're going to walk away with 3000 and I'm going to have a bigger headache to deal with to chase you and everybody else who just stole my money, which that was going to be a rip. So I said, I'll give you five minutes. I'm going to sit in the car. Either you bring it or I'm out of here. Because either I, and that's, that's the beauty of being the case agent and the undercover is that I don't feel the pressure. Let's say I was just the undercover and I'm working for somebody else working their case, right? Something you feel the pressure, you want to make it happen. For me, I'm both. And if it happens, great. If not, I got a lot of work. I got other people I'm dealing with. I, I got you today. I got someone else tomorrow, right? So I, I don't I don't, I don't, ever felt that kind of pressure. I had to make it happen uh, because I don't. I want to go home at the end. That's that's the most important thing. No, no deals there. Five minutes later, a Honda Odyssey pulls up. Guy pops up with an AK-47. Same for a round drum. So I... Uh, him and I talk. He sells me the gun. I take a look at it. I give him the money for that. And then he has a backpack. Another friend had brought him. And, he's, and he sells me the Glocks with the uh, the crystal map. I said, hey, dude, next time, just keep it between us. And I don't want to deal with this circus next time. And he understood. Right. And he understood yeah. that. So what? What? I think it was testament. Right. So why would you go? Why? If, if the AK wasn't in there. Mm-hmm. They showed up later. Like, why am I going in the trailer? Like, why? What do you think they were trying to get you in the trailer for? I think they want to rip me off. Oh, okay. I think they want to take my money. So, okay. Yeah. I think they want to rip me off. That's. What, I think they want to take my three thousand dollars, three thousand four dollars, and, and hit me. He said, "Hey, man, this, hey, this could be easy hit right here, and and, and we don't have to sell anything, um, because you you don't know so these, some of these gang. I mean, these are gang members, by the way. These aren't average. Oh, these 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 are trailer shitty trailer in Zephyr Hills. These are there's a lot of gangs in that area." I want you to understand a lot of Hispanic gangs, a lot of gang members, say a lot of meth, a lot of heroin, armed to teeth. I don't think of Zephyr Hills and that's what I think of. like that at all. I mean, it's it's, it's very you know rural. Like you know, what I'm saying it seems like it's read read my book and and I'll give example after example of that area. Go on, go in there and stuff like that. It's it it is hot, and um, that's when I was there. I think it's gotten worse what I've seen because mm-hmm. the cartels have just gotten stronger. When I was there, they were coming up. You know, El Chapo was good. Sinaloa is strong. But but now you have uh, the rise of CJNG, which yeah. is Jalisco New Generation Cartel. Yeah. Major rival for Sinaloa, right? El Mencho, he, he's now the big player. Cervantes, right? <clears throat> and uh, they're, they're going to war. You know, and all these guys, you know, El Chapo, El Mencho, give your, your audience a little background. 
well, these guys came out of absolute poverty. I mean, yeah. they were selling avocados and oranges in the street, and now risen to me big drug lords where their assets are over $50 billion. That's according to the Mexican government and the U.S. government. So you tell me they're not making drug lords in Mexico? When these guys, got, and, and most of these guys are illiterate. They dropped out of school when they're in the fourth or fifth grade, right? But what are they good at? They're good at killing. Yeah. And they're not afraid to kill. Yeah, they're brutal. They're brutal. Say, brutal. Uh, brutal. Is it uh, El Mayo, which was uh, Chapo's, who basically started the Sinaloa, right? With uh, And then El Chapo kind of came in right after. But I was going to say, El Mayo, like, I, I heard that he still drives like an old, he's he's worth, you know, billions and billions or you know, whatever. And he still drives an old pickup truck. That's smart. Around town. Like, you know, like he's not, you know, he lives in a, a you know, different places. And, you know, same thing with El Chavo. He's always, all he's really, he's really good at surviving. He was up until the United States got him, you know, yeah. but he was really good at, at surviving, you know, through brutality and just forth thinking, like always right. have an escape route, always be thinking, don't all, keep staying in the same place, change change locations you know that's what el, el chapo was nicknamed also el rapido the quick one he was the master of the tunnels right right and remember that great tunnel he had the second time he was captured underneath oh, that next prison unbelievable now you know what's funny about that i had read that like the area that was where the prison is mm-hmm. it was actually the new generation that was in charge of digging even though they're rivals of digging the tunnel yeah, but at that time, I think at that time, they were still, uh, 2015, yeah, they began to go a little bit sideways. Not as bad as now, but it, it would get a lot worse. But uh, what a corruption. What that, that's one of the things I talk about. I said, we don't have a uh, equal partner in the war on drugs. The corruption right. in Mexico is so unbelievable. And that's the reason I bring that up, because during the trial for El Chapo in, in, uh, in New York, it was brought, these government witnesses testified that El Chapo offered, uh, this is before Lopez Obrador, the president before that with uh, Peña Nieta, he offered him of a bribe. Nieta won allegedly, according to court documents, he wanted a $250 million payout, so we want to look for El Chapo. He said, you don't worry about it, you can be a fugitive for another 15 years, right? He said, no, I'll pay you $100 million. And allegedly, witnesses said, testified, he took it. He took it. So if the top of Mexican government is on the take, then we have no chance. And this is what right. the battles we're, we're fighting. You know, you, you see case after case after general, uh, t- attorney general. I mean, just get keep on getting arrested for being involved in, in money laundering and, and, and involved in all this stuff here. Uh, and this guy, El Mencho, out of CJNG, um, he was former law enforcement. He was out of Jalisco, right? He, he was involved. So a lot of these guys know the game. They know it. And he's the same way we just talked about at Mayo, when I was reading Guadalajara, because now it's the battle for Guadalajara, which is where a lot of stuff is going on, but he looks like he's won because they're trying to do a split. You know how everything is. Everybody wants to be king, right? Yeah. One day you're the king, they, they want to take you out, right? El Mencho had guys he brought in that was former Millennium Cartel guys that split, right? Um, and they want to take over. And um, this guy's name is, um, uh, escape right now, but if, if you look at the videos, he has him tortured, right? Wrapped up, kill him, and then left at the park bench. It's, this is what happens when people betray uh, El Mencho, right? And stuff like that. So right now, it seems like he still has the lockdown in Guadalajara. 
which is very important for him. And he's the same guy that you're talking about, Amayo. He likes to live modestly. Not like Escobar, right? That lived in that big palace, right? Everybody knew where, where he lived and where he was at, but he brought he bribed everybody. These guys have to low key. Uh, El Chapo's uh, bounty was five million, right? At his peak when he escaped the second time after Sean Penn and Kate Del Castillo interviewed him. Yeah. And said, well, if you haven't seen that interview uh, and video, man, you guys need to check that out. Rolling Stone magazine. That's unbelievable. great. Unbelievable stuff. He's. I, I can't believe Sean Penn did that because. You don't know yeah, that, that's yeah that you know listen they don't care he, El Chapo didn't even know who he was yeah. like he's probably thinking well my celebrity will probably help help me a little bit as or keep me safe a little bit no it won't like, he didn't even know who you are no no I I would not have done that that could have got really ugly and they almost caught him after the interview because they were tracking uh, the Mexican actress Castillo's phone U.S. authorities were were tracking and, and just missed him barely just barely it will take a few more years. To finally catch him again, and they will not escape the third time. They will not escape a third time. Well, the, I mean, like, it, they obviously realize, like, look, we're just not going to be able to keep this guy here. We we have to send him to the United States. And that's so sad because you know what? Now we have the costs, right? Now the U.S. tax dollar has to pay for keeping this guy for life, feeding him the expenses, the legal everything we pay because the Mexican government is so corrupt they couldn't do it themselves. And it's case after case like this. Very sad. Very I sad think- situation. You know, it, it's funny, like, I, I, first of all, people are always, you know, oh, the, you know, like, the U.S. government's corrupt. Or like, they, look, there, there's some corruption here and there, but like, you have no idea what it's That's like true. in other countries. That's true. In other countries, it, look, if, and not just that, it's like, look, you're paying, you're a police officer in Mexico making six or seven hundred dollars a month. Nothing. That's nothing. Like, like, I get it. You shouldn't. You know, you, sh- you shouldn't be involved in corruption. You should be. But it's hard not to be, not only for the money, but it's dangerous. Like, if you end up being a cop, like, it's it's kind of like the, um the the what was it? um Shoot. I, I was going to say what there was a movie about it. um El Cholo was his name. El Cholo was a guy who, his rival, they got wrapped up and executed. Look up his name, El Cholo. Oh. Look at the video. He, he he's getting, you see the guy from uh, CJNG behind him in masks. And next thing you know, he ends up in a park bench. See the pictures wrapped up. He was tortured. I said, "This is what happened to El Cholo, the traitor." He don't play. He don't play. It's just a, it's a horrible situation in general. Yeah. So you know, when you were talking about like the higher up um, upper echelon of the government, I have a buddy named uh, Juan Sanchez who was in um, in Venezuela. Right. He was a Venezuelan citizen. Came to the United States. Started doing real estate, doing very well. Uh, 2008 financial crisis hits. His um, his subdivisions and the developments start going under. He needs money. Mm-hmm. So he goes to Venezuela and he starts pitching to Venezuelans like, hey, you should invest. And so he, people in the government invest. Basically, the equivalent of the U.S. Um, uh, or the, the head, U, like the U.S. attorney here, right? The U.S. attorney general. Mm-hmm in Venezuela ends up investing with him yeah. multiple people in the in the government investing but they're in gov there he finds out later when Juan gets caught the money they're investing is money they're laundering for Mexico for the cartels for the cartels through Venezuela they give it to Juan Juan loses the money oh no and now they're threatening to kill him he actually goes back to Venezuela they kidnap him for four or five days he eventually escapes gets on a plane flies back to the United States but 
when he gets caught, he eventually obviously cooperates. He cooperates and the FBI comes in and the the CIA comes in. He, he, he said they never said CIA, but they never showed badges, anything. My lawyer told me I think they were CIA. They come in and they say, listen, we looked at your phone. We see phone numbers and names in here of people that we've had indicted from Venezuela that are in the government. And they so they start asking him, you know this guy? You know this guy? He goes, yeah, I know that guy. And they said, we've had him indicted on a sealed indictment. We can't get him. But, you know, so they asked him what happened. He tells them. And he says, do you want me to get him to... to come to the United States and they go, yeah, but he's, he would never do that. He's, he's not that stupid. And they go, and, and Juan goes, no, no, he's that stupid. He goes, you don't get to become, uh, um, you don't get that high in the government without being, you don't get it through brains. You get it through brutality. That's true. So he, co- he contacts him because the guy had asked him to try and get him a travel permit in the United States so he could bring his family into the United States to visit Disney World. Mm-hmm. So he contacts him, sends him an email. No, no, that's not it. But his 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 visa had been denied by the State Department. He said, all you have to do is have the U.S. Embassy write him a letter saying that it was a mistake and it's been approved uh-huh. and he can come. They wrote him a letter. He said, literally, we're talking about three days later, he's on a plane, flies into Miami, and they arrest him in the airport in Miami with his family thinking they're going to Disney World. Disney World. No. 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 And, and no, he's going to the slammer now. <laughs> you know what happened is he, he, he rolled over on a bunch of people. He ended up getting like four years or something and got back out. Oh, did he? Massive, massive indictment. This guy's deal. It's like at that level? You you got to cooperate. You got to flip. You got to turn. If, if, and if, if one thing I've noticed, all these guys too, because if you don't, you get, you get the hammer. You get slammed. Yeah. You get the mo- the most time. So yeah, you're gonna, you know, there's our, yeah. You know, but talking about Venezuela, man. Ven- Venezuela, it was Nicolas Maduro. Now it, it's a narco state. It, it has become a he he he's not a communist anymore. And remember him Hugo Chavez? This guy's no communist. This, this guy, it, it's all about making money. And, but the people suffer. He keeps them suffering. This guy's a dictator. He, he, he's a yep. narco dictator. He's been indicted by our government. And, and to bring more, but you know what upsets me? It's a little politics here, but we'll talk a little, a little bit of everything. My book's all about this. But Joe Biden threw him a lifeline. Administration, to see if Chevron go back there and get oil pumped up because we don't want to deal with the Russians, right? We're, we're tired of the Saudis. We have the stuff he's done. Uh, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, so... It's like we want to work with the Venezuelans with all the stuff this guy's done. He's an atrocity to his people. If you're not about him, you're 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 done. And that's why Miami, you know, has been transformed with the uh, Venezuelans coming over, like the Cubans did. You know, from the '60s on, the Venezuelans right. have brought a lot of money. Doral, unfamiliar with South Florida, uh, has changed immensely with the Venezuelans. A lot, a lot of the money has come over, transformed it. So. That's that's what you're seeing. And people say, well, man, America has it. No, yeah, the United States has issues. I live in Virginia now, and I was fortunate enough to, uh, I, I like to travel like history. My background, you know, I taught you political science and history. I went to Mount Mount Vernon, and uh, I've gone to Monticello. Well, Mount Vernon is Washington's home, and then yeah. Monticello is Jefferson's home. And, and I visited there, and uh, even it's true, 1797, you know, Washington had just finished his second term, will not run for a third term, does not want to be seen like King George 
or, or a dictator. He says, even then applies today. We had issues. You know, it, it's no perfect democracy. It's not a perfect system, but it's the best that's out there. And I think it applies today, the same thing. It's not perfect, people. We're not have a perfect system, but it's the best. It's the best that's out there. Trust me, I've seen, I, I studied politics internationally, the corruption. Yeah, we're going to have corrupt officials. We're going to have problems, but it's the best that's out there. Um, so th that's where we're at with, with the corruption in, in, in Mexico. But the Mexican government, it, it's probably worse. I, I think it's, it's stronger than, than the Colombians were because their, their reach is all over Central America. It's all over South America. And they have a lot of people in the United States. And, and, and they're reaching not just in customs officials, just not, not just with politicians, but you see it deeper and deeper in our country because the money is so big and so out there and the corruption is big. It's corrupt here, but they're corrupting here. So what are our solutions? We, we need to deal with the problem with that treatment. We need people to get off it. We need people to work on their uh, on their addictions because it's just going to get worse. And, and they want to, like, like Maduro said, like I said, they're weaponizing cocaine to help destroy this country. They, they think it, it, it's going to fall like a rotten apple from within. People are going to fall and break. And that's what they're trying to do. So um, it's funny. So I, I I wish, why can't I remember the name of this this book? I used to know it too. And let, trust me, somebody in the comment section will, will tell me the name of the book. It was actually came out probably 15, probably 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. And it's about, there's a, a like a, an evangelist, right? Like, like a, like a preacher, super rich preacher. Mm. His son gets caught. He has a security detail, right? Like he's got the, several of these mega churches. He has a security detail. And one of the, the lead security agent or security person in charge of his security detail is a former DEA agent that had to retire because of brutality. Like he'd been caught multiple times. Like, and you know, he was, he'd been written up. He finally retires. Mm. Well, the, I'll call him the preacher. The preacher's son ends up getting caught like smoking, I don't know, smoking, doing drugs or something. One of his friend ODs on coke or something. I forget what it was. But he he's upset and he ends up venting to this former DEA agent. So his security, um, you know, head of security. So his head of security, he's like, you know, he says, how much money do I give? You know, every month, every, every year. And he's like, oh, like a million dollars to these programs. And he goes, he goes, is it even helping? He's like, no, it's not going to, uh, this is going to do nothing. And he says, well, what can end this? And he said, well, you know, it's so out of control that the government can't, they just can't, it's everything they can do to try and keep it stemmed. If you could get it pulled back a little bit, then they could probably get a better handle on it. And he said, there's an idea we used to kick around at the DEA. And he said, well, what was that? He said, if you poisoned the drug supply, then... The, 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 the hardcore, he said, the casual users aren't the problem. He says casual users would just stop. He said, but the drug addicts, he said, they would have to seek some kind of rehabs. Any rehab, yeah. Right. And so they end up, he ends up going to somewhere and who knows where, Brazil, I forget where it was, <laughs> but someplace. And he, he ends up, he ends up finding this chemist and he ends up getting these mushrooms that allows them to poison, um, the drug supply, right? Like Coke. And he, he, of course, he he gets a bunch of retired DEA agents, you know, friends of his to help him. There's a group of like six of them. And he ends up poisoning a whole bunch of drugs. And what happens is the hardcore users, 
they they inhale it and then if they do enough of it it ends up breaking down and shutting down their their livers and they die so they end up doing this on a massive scale oh my gosh and i, I listen it was and of course what happens is it, it it works but the problem is is what he tells the preacher is like you know there will be some people will get sick there may be a few deaths and he knows the reality is there's going to be thousands and there ends up being tens of thousands of deaths because they do it on such a massive scale and um, this is fiction this is fiction it's fiction yeah it's fiction but it's it's a great book i mean keep on how much i read when i was locked up it was this it was just really well written researched you know how much was possible i don't know but it was it it really you know it, and the guy's got the statistics and the whole thing and you you really realize reading the book like what a massive issue it is oh it is oh, it is and another another way to attack it was when you're seeing here you see in Virginia all over the country and it started with marijuana it's it's been it's getting legalized all over the country right right recreational use you, you take the because the Mexican cartels make a lot of money cultivating marijuana so you right. take that away from them that's going to hurt their profits a lot too so right. I think marijuana, you're seeing it. I mean, I know Florida is just medical, but I know Virginia got it approved for a recreational. So it, it is going all over in the Northeast, the Midwest. Of course, the West Coast, the up and down, is proof of recreational. So that's where you're seeing it. It's going that way. I, I think marijuana, you know, Thomas Jefferson even grew marijuana in Monticello, right? Founding fathers. I mean, marijuana has been around for hundreds of thousands of years. People have been smoking it. Right, you know, right. It's not my thing. I don't like getting high. I don't like you know smoking my lungs. But if some people that's what they want, like cigarette smoking, I I rather not be around it. Right. I like to eat away from that. I don't like to be around any of that stuff here. But some people like it. I think the edibles now, I think are legal in every state. It gets you high. Those edibles. Right. Have you seen that? Every that's everywhere now. Yeah. I I mean, you know, I think drugs were just never my 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 thing. But I, no. but this is the thing. I'm I'm, I definitely agree that. You know, to me, look, if you took the money they spent on the prison population and you made going to rehabs affordable and you did more education and you legalize a lot of those substances, I think would alleviate the problem considerably. And it, listen, and it'd be detrimental to the, to the cartels. Absolutely. Because then, then you're taxing it here. We're making the money, right? The, the states and the federal system. So you, you have to eliminate marijuana from being a Schedule One banned substance, right? That's the first thing because it's, you can do all the things at the state level, but if you're still a, uh, a you use marijuana, you want to buy a firearm and an FFL, Federal Firearms Licensee, you're still prohibited. You can't do that because you're still a drug user, right? So right. if you're a drug user, you can't do that. Marijuana is still on the list there. So a lot of things, I know that's passed in the House of Representatives that needs to be approved in the Senate to start making this nationwide because I've seen it firsthand. I think we're wasting time in the judicial system, plowing judicial system, when you have these petty cases, you have ATF went after the worst of the worst, right? The most right. violent. That's what we have to focus on. The most violent repeat offenders, armed traffickers, armed home invaders, guys who want to commit murder for hire, you know, international traffickers. That's you know, gun traffickers. That's what we have to focus on. Not guys who have some weed, they want smoke, and they're doing this on the side. I mean, all the places want to have a ZT policy, zero tolerance, that's a waste of time. That's you, you're clogging the system on, on these people should be treated for health issues, not criminal. You shouldn't criminalize these people. In my opinion, this isn't coming from guys who've been 26 years in law enforcement who have seen it, right? 
I, I just think it is a waste of our tax dollars. It's a waste of time. And we're building more prisons. We need to focus on, and the court system gets overwhelmed with it also. And you don't want any of that. So we have to be smarter. It's marijuana. Yes. Hey, we learned, learned the lesson from prohibition. I wrote a book about it, right? The rise of the outfit here, the Chicago crime bosses. And right. after, that's what made Al Capone. That's what made these guys the violence because it was illegal, right? And then once we legalize it, well, there goes that. And all of a sudden, the government's making the money, right? They're getting taxed and everybody can enjoy themselves. You're not being criminalized for having a beer or drinking whiskey, which is was ridiculous, right? But the same thing, in my opinion, should apply to marijuana. The other drugs, a little bit tougher to deal with, but we have to come up with solutions. But marijuana is a first gateway, I think, with that because, I mean, everybody in college, you, you want, you see how many people in college have to go sometimes to really bad areas to get some weed, right? Right. End up getting hurt, robbed. You, want, you just go to the store, right? It's illegal. Uh, that, that we have to be smart about it. Obviously, I don't want to be around it. And I don't want to smell it because I went to Kingston for do some work uh, for training. And everywhere in Kingston, you could smell it. The ganja, as they say. Ganjaman, right? It's everywhere. I, I really don't, I, I didn't care for that smell. That's okay. wrong. Kingston in um, Jamaica, right? Right, Kingston, Jamaica. They have a lot. They, they grow a lot of a lot of weed. They call it ganja over there. Oh, listen. And you know, there's places in Jamaica you can't even go. Oh, that's true. I, I mean, the government doesn't go. Yeah. Like we were when I went to Jamaica. It's funny. I was I was on the run and I went Where? to Jamaica. And and we were to have the taxi driver. He's like driving us around, and we were like, "Hey, let's go here. Let's go here." And he was like, "Yeah, you can't go there." And he was like, "Listen, he's like the police don't go there. Like you definitely aren't going there." We he's like, "We're not going there in my cab." And it was like, wow, it was like, it's that bad? Like, what do you mean the police don't go? He's like, no, it's com that section, that area is completely um, owned and operated by, the, you know, this one gang. Jamaican prostitute, whoever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they just had a huge arrest, of, I think about five, seven years ago. Guy's name was Coke, like from cocaine. Right. Yeah, and, and, that, and, and the people in Kingston were rioting because he obviously, you know, they provide a lot of work. And, you know, it, it's like an Escobar type, right? They also give a lot. To the community, just like just like uh, Chapel did, Guzman, they give a lot, right. they help a lot. They know the, the little people, they want to take care of the little people. So they kind of help the little people a lot because they, they work for the organization and do stuff like that. That's the same mentality you, you saw out there in Kingston. Yeah, a lot of people just want to go. If I tell them to go to Jamaica, I was going to maybe work there as an attache. But once I saw first half to two weeks there, how the conditions were, no way. I wouldn't bring my family, that's for sure. And I definitely wouldn't go with my family in Mexico. Uh, because I'll, I'll also because at the end of my career, I promoted and I went to ATF headquarters and I, I worked at two years and I was helping briefing the, uh, the director case uh, uh, with one in command for the central region, who now is number two command for ATF right now. So that's a good contact that, uh, that I have and working and talking and briefing some of the most sensitive cases that ATF was working. Uh, so and then I was going to maybe transfer to Mexico. But then with the issue with Lopez Obrador, what was going on, uh, who was the president of Mexico, they renounced our diplomatic community status as agents. So you think I'm going to go to Mexico and they don't want to carry firearms. So they don't want you armed. They don't want you to have diplomatic community. And I'm going to be kidnapped with my family? I said, no way. I said, I'm eligible to retire. I did my time up here. I enjoyed my career. Thank you so much. <laughs> and then I got into writing. <laughs> right. I, I did a nice trip in writing. Um, well, I've been, you know, writing like this uh, by a year and a half now since I've been retired. 
Uh, but I, I used to write a lot of reports, right? You get good and really detailed in writing a lot and a lot and a lot. So I said, and I always had a thing for it. I like, I like reading. I'm always fascinated with, uh, you know, history and political science and current events. I'm always reading information. So that's what a lot of my books are. You know, I got fiction, nonfiction, but I do a lot of politics. I do about organized crime. And I, and I realized, you know, when I started writing, what, and I'm not here to promote anybody, but, you know, you know, I had a family member. She was in the publishing industry for over 20 years, right? She had, she got laid off and I was talking to her and she said, you know, it's hard at the time, you know, COVID was still around, right? And it was such a huge backlog. And uh, I said, you know, you might want to look at Kindle and with Amazon because you can self-publish. Yeah. And you don't have to wait for anybody, right? And you get like 80, 20, especially digital books, like 75, 25, right? So, you know, screen on both ends. A screen for my pocketbook and a screen for the environment. We do the digital books, right? And um, and then I'm now doing audio too. Uh, and shout out to Sean Milo for that. We'll, we both know him. He's a great guy. And that, that should be coming out, my book. If you're not, Naomi's a big reader. And I've been told a lot of people rather listen to it. Yeah. And it's a great, great story. I, I encourage people to listen to these books uh, and go audible. It should be out hopefully in about a month or less. It'll be out there. So I looked into it. And it worked for me because I go at my pace. I do whatever subject matter, because you know how it is. A publisher, you get rid of the middleman who's only cares about making money. I'm always, it's not about always making money. It's about putting something out there, which I want to talk about, read about. Right. I was going to say also, you know, as a writer, you make like, you'll make $6, $6.57 on a book that you sell on, on Amazon. And if the, publisher sells it you're making a dollar 15 a dollar 35 like you know and look the i i got a I, when i was locked up i got a book deal they were in barnes and nobles you know that's great like how how exciting is that that's super cool but in the end like six months ago this is five years later six months ago is the first time i actually got a, a small check from them by because it took that long to pay back the advance they gave me they gave me like a thirty five hundred dollar advance and listen, in prison, thirty five hundred bucks is a lot, a lot of money. But you know, it just took that long to even pay it back. That's ridiculous. Now you would have made a lot more money with Kindle for for sure. Yeah, and I like doing all. I mean, and I enjoy just like I did my cases. I wore many hats. <laughs> I played that with my books. I do my own book covers. I do my own editing. I I, I write the material. I choose what what I'm going to write about. I just did a book that just came out. I think I forwarded to you on Facebook. Uh, a messenger on uh, Jim Jones, right? In the, in, the, in, the, in Jonestown on the massacre uh, because it's now 45 years and I want to do a little bit deeper dive in that. And I found some pretty interesting things in there and mistakes that were made. And I, I thought things, and I also give my opinion, right? Based on my expertise. Right. Uh, there's the worst U.S. cult mass murder in U.S. history. Almost nine, oh, 950 dead, right? I was, I was going to say almost a thousand people. It's something like 150 kids or 200 kids or something. How many kids? More than that. Or more of that. That's horrible. You could hear, if you haven't heard the Jim Jones tape, because he recorded the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. You should hear that. Horrible. Horrible. My kids are crying and everything else. And the mother, his wife, uh, Marcelina, I her name was, she's telling him, because these are his kids too, he's poisoning. He said, let the kids live. And he goes, and just like this, he goes, mother, 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 please. You know, he's already crazy. Mother, yeah. please. Like, and very sarcastic and nasty. Like, says, you know, children hurry because they already killed the congressman, right? They, he yeah. had his goons go out and already kill the congressman, Leo Ryan, and his entourage, NBC, and everybody else, the Washington Post. They gunned him down because they knew they had 20 defectors. 
he knew it was over. It, it yeah. was over in Guyana. And, um, and then he, he said, when they came back, said, hey, some escaped. He knew it was over. He knew they were going to come down, put him in jail, shut it all down. And he'd rather, he, he was so selfish. He'd rather everybody kill themselves to make that statement. He called it the suicidal revolution, which is insanity. All these people's lives that came in and for a better life lost their lives. Drinking the Kool-Aid. That's what it's called, right? Drinking the Kool-Aid. It wasn't even Kool-Aid. Flavor-Aid. Yeah. Flavor-Aid. But it, poor Kool-Aid. Yeah. Poor Kool-Aid got hit with Kool-Aid. Drinking the Kool-Aid this whole time. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. What's that? Yeah. Kool-Aid. Flavor-Aid. But I was going to say, um, look, look, take the... The problem is everybody always fakes face. Everybody always focuses on the the murder, right? Right. That the the mass suicide. You even if you remove if you remove that though, his rise is amazing. Oh my god! His yeah. ability to manipulate is amazing, and the fact that he starts Jonestown, and then the senator shows up, and they they realize the senator. They realize what's happening. Senator, yeah, back, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, Congressman's going to go back to the United States. He's yeah. gonna he's gonna tell everybody they're going to obviously send over the troops and grab these guys. I mean, it's, it's coming down, but then he actually sends his guys to kill him. That's unbelievable. And, and they do like that story. That That's the great thing. What, what I love about, I love about nonfiction. You couldn't come up with that. No, like that is so bizarre. It's, it, it, you know, the term, you know, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. That's true. Who, I agree. Is the, if you told someone that and it hadn't happened, they'd be like, "Yeah, bro, that's just like it's 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 too out there to believe." Sure, I agree. Nobody would believe. like that's just too, and it. But it happened. It, it's it's an amazing story. He's another guy that grew up, and I didn't know his background until I reached. This is a reason why I do stuff like this. I love researching nonfiction. I love it. And I've done a lot of these. So if you like what we're talking about, check out the book, please. It's it's on Amazon. It just just came out. But w with him, he came out out of absolute poverty. Yeah. Object poverty. I mean, out of Indiana, right? And in Lynn, Indiana, his father was a uh, World War I veteran who suffered serious, serious uh, chemical attacks. You know how the war was in the trenches, right? Yeah. He, he couldn't breathe. He couldn't work. Couldn't do anything. Guy was disabled pretty much. And the pension was horrible back then. And then they had the Great Depression. They lost their home. The government, the, the, the company, the mortgage company seized it. And the family had to buy him a shack. And they lived in a shack with no plumbing, no and and no electricity, an mm -hmm. absolute horrible situation. So that's why he, I think, he needed to find something, and I think that's what he found. You know, religion and ministry. His his goal, because he he would obviously perverse it completely, and right. and, he, and he would end up, you know, the people's temple was ends up being a cult pretty much yeah. because you, to join you have to turn all your finances to, right, all your money goes to him. He'll take care of you. He'll find your housing. And he took advantage, and I hate to say it, it took advantage of a lot of minorities and a lot of disadvantaged people, right? And the politicians, because he came up with integration, right? He was one of the first guys integrating the churches with blacks and whites and, and everything else. What was unpopular in Indiana, right? He ended up going to San Francisco. Well, of course, very liberal out there, right? Became very popular. He would help get votes for the mayor. And in 76, Walter Mondale and Jimmy Carter was there, and he helped California go blue, right? So he, he can beat Ford. So that's why they were embarrassed, humiliated, right? Angry. They didn't want a full investigation on Jonestown. But this guy, Ryan, him, he was a Democrat, but he knew there was something wrong. 
And but this is where I criticize him in the book a little bit. When you know this guy is so unstable, right? He they had already information, affidavits to defectors that they were already doing mock drills like this, drinking the Kool-Aid. They, they already trained them that if this happens, this is what we're going to do. They have people what they call white knight drills where they have gunfire over their heads. So they would just stay down and they would drink the Kool-Aid. He had all the cyanide prepared for this. So you don't think... But, I mean, imagine how, I, but I don't you... Yeah. Look, but I, I hear what you're saying, but if you were telling me that, I would be thinking, oh, that's crazy. It's too crazy. Like, that's not going to happen. Like, that's never happened. Like, like I mean, in the in history, it's yeah. happened. But it, it's so unbelievable that an American citizen and that a group of American citizens Americans. Yeah. would have done this or that anybody would follow or anybody would follow through like, okay, he's doing it. I get it. He's out there. But that's probably not. It's not going to happen. And, you know, who's going to and who's going to kill a senator? That's not going to happen. Was it a senator or congressman? Congressman. Yeah, not, congressman. not just not just a congressman, but the entourage that's with yeah, him. The staff, yeah. The staff. And there's one lady who was his staff member. She survived by playing dead for 24 hours uh, on the strip there and, and until the Army came in to rescue her. She played dead. for. She had five bullet wounds inside her. She just wrote a book and, and a great interview. I haven't seen her talk about it. Uh, she gets very emotional. Now, she took over his old position like 10 years ago. So now she's a congressperson from that from that district. Okay. Yeah. But wow. Uh, unbelievable story. But you know what? A lot of people didn't commit suicide. But what the investigation shows, they wanted to leave. They were. Yeah. They were. The, the guards. His his what he called the red. But he's he's a communist. And those yeah. who don't know, he he he's a hardcore, very much Marxist Leninist communist. He hated this country because obviously the racial issues. He called it pretty much a racist fascist nation. Right. And he wanted to set up this Marxist utopia out there in Jonestown. He he was big Fidel Castro. He he was a big fan of the Soviet Union. He even had Soviet officials come in and say, "This is the perfect Marxist utopia that I have set up here." And they congratulated him. They went out there and said, "Man, you've done here." But at the same time, these people were oppressed. They had him. He had him work twelve-hour days. He fed him rice and beans while he ate like a, like a king. And at the end, those who didn't want to commit suicide. The goon squad, what I call them, the Red Brigade, came up with in injections and injected everybody in the shoulder with a cyanide. And you see that. And, and and so a lot of people were murdered. And to me, when you're brainwashed like that, you're, you're being murdered. Because it didn't, didn't some of the people even try and run off into the woods and stuff and they were shooting at them? Or? No, no, they, they didn't. You can't, you can't, you, no escape. You, you have to die. When he, when he said it's time to die, it, it is time to die. There, there was no like, hey, this was a, a mat. Now, these people were murdered. I mean, look, a lot of people say, you know, especially children, and, and they have no, no say in it. They were forced to drink that, small children. They were they were killed, and they were a lot. I think there were 200-something children that were murdered, and including his own children. And it, his own wife even protested and said, this, this has to be a different way. And then it, then it, it, it goes, mother, 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 please. You know, he, he goes like, you know, he gets, he's already in that crazy psycho world. And he tells children, we have to hurry, children. We have to hurry. We have to send a message to the world, the suicidal revolution. I mean, he was just off his, I mean, who in the right mind will see, because he wants to send a message. And then he didn't take the Kool-Aid himself, the cyanide. He, he shot himself in the head. Did you, well, there, so, uh, I've got, I'm going to butcher this guy's name. The the guy who wrote Fight Club, uh, uh, Chuck oh. uh, check Yeah. I, I, I know I butchered his name. Anyway, he, he wrote a book called Survivor, mm. and it talks about a mass suicide 
and he he talks about several mass suicides in the book, but it's very much written in the same vein as Fight Club. You know, he has that real choppy um, uh, writing style, it, it's, which is, is great because that book really moves along. He also talks about like that's a great book with about multiple different types of suicide. Talks about um, Heaven Gate, Heaven's Gate, Heaven's Gate. Yep. Yeah, that sui- uh, mass suicide, but nothing like like nothing compares to to. There's nothing. We've never had it. It, it was the worst mass murder until 9-11, right, with Americans, right? I see that. Um, so, you know, and, 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 and with that, so going back to my point, I thought the congressman made a mistake. I know he had a history of being very proactive. He, he's a Democrat. And remember, th- this guy, Jones, helped the Democrats win the 76 election, the national election. He helped it, it win a lot because he was key getting the votes out. With African Americans, because he had an integrated church, he was a socialist. Remember, and there's a very socialist area. So, the, the State Department did not give him a lot of information while I was reading. And according to the staff member who survived, what really was going on? Because remember, they had people already saying about all these defectors saying, "Hey, dude, they're doing mock exercises. They're torturing people in there. If you stand up anything, they'll put you in this hot box. They'll put you underground. They they put you in a well. They they really torture people. You better get on the program." There's no escaping. There's no leaving. This is what they're doing to you. So I think it was a big mistake. Him knowing what's going on there, knowing these guys are armed, he knew they were armed. I personally, just being common sense, is I need the guy in government to help me get me security, protection. He went unarmed. With He thinking that the media guys, oh, you know, I have, have NBC with me, I have the Washington Post. They're going to, he's not going to shoot us with, with the media here. Yeah, kill everybody. This guy's not following the Geneva Convention. Like I guess reporters or, or medics. Don't you know I'm a congressman? Yeah. I don't think he cares. Yeah. Sure, man. He, he care. So that's the, you can never underestimate your opponent. Never underestimate. Yeah. Be prepared. Uh, I, I think he would have if he would have had the army or at least some representatives and they saw the evidence, I think they could have arrested him, taken him there and he would have saved those lives. I think he was just approached the wrong way. That that and at the end, knowing that kind of person, how volatile he was, how could they not think that would not trigger that after he'd been practicing that, right? He pretty much said that's what he's gonna do. Arrogance. So that's my yeah. criticism in the book, if you read it. I, I, I blame a lot of the Carter administration at the time for for obviously he went out there as, as a congressman, he could do his own investigation, right? It, it, different bodies of, of government, you have the executive and the legislator legislator. Right. But they should have given him some support and protection because he, he was set up to fail. He was set up to fail, and they failed badly. And, and look what we have, the consequences. So something you got to really think about this guy. And, and, and he really, there's a reason why he went, he created Jonestown, because he was this close, again, picked up in the U.S. for obviously tax evasion. He really didn't have a church. He had all this protection as a church, but it was a cult, and he was stealing, and he was abusing. Right. He, would, he, he would rape the members. He would even rape males. So he, he was involved in a lot of bad things. So he knew his time was coming. That's why he set up Guyana. Uh, I think originally he wanted to go in Brazil, but it was easier for him because he's in, uh, Guyana was a British colony, a former British colony, English speaking, and it just worked out easier for him to go to Guyana, which at the time had become a socialist nation also, very communist. So that's another issue they had to deal with. So interesting read. If you like what we talked about, I think you'll like the story of Jim Jones. If you don't know much about it, a lot of the younger generation, I've noticed, doesn't know anything what happened in Jonestown. So yeah. read about it. You'll be shocked. And the video, his video, his tape, the death tape, you got to listen to that. 
of, a, of, a, of the brink of a madman with a thousand people jumping off a cliff. Mm. Um, well, shoot, I was going to say something too when you were talking. I was thinking, um, God, oh, oh, I know what it was. It was the, uh, um, it, it kind of, one of the things you were talking about finances is it reminded me uh -huh. of, um, of uh, uh, David Koresh. Oh, Waco. Yeah. Yeah. He would have everybody, he would have all the women and everybody go and get on uh, food stamps and get on, you know, like that. That's a big thing with the cult. One of the things they do is they, they immediately have everybody sign up for, you know, they call it what they call it bleeding the, bleeding the beast. They, they call it like bleeding the beast where you sign up for all the subsidies and all that you get as much as you can. Of course, they all live there. And he, of course, you know, he's got air conditioning. He's eating well. They're all he's like a king. Yeah. Yeah. That's typical with this communist, you know, socialist system. Look at Nicolas Maduro. You looked at Fidel Castro. You look at Xi Jinping in China. You yeah. looked at Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea. They, they abuse the people, the little people. They think this is better for them. No, this is the best system out here, folks. Don't get conned into that. This this is the best system out there. It's, it's, nothing is perfect, but it is the best system. At least... You know, you can work your way up. You want to get your education. You want to do things. You can make something in your life here. And it happens. One thing you can never take away from you, and I tell people this all the time, is your education. They can never, no matter what happens, they can never take your education from you. They can't take your drive from you. They can't take your determination from you. That's built within you, no matter what government happens in here. So educate it and be free. And, and there's a lot of brainwashing. And be a person, ask questions. Get different sources. Don't just accept one source. And unfortunately, these people did that, right? And you see the communists do that. And, 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 and he was very good at propaganda and brainwashing where you weren't allowed to get other information from other sources. It was his source of information, healthy diet every day. That way, that's what Castro did, the same thing. CCP does the same thing in China. And I've written about th those books in China. Uh, they like their one-party system as our way or the highway. So end up one of three ways for you. Either their death, imprisonment, or they're going to kick you out of the country. That's a reality. That's a reality we live in the 21st century. All right. That's depressing. So, all right. So, but true though, right? You really brought the, you really brought the, the tenor of the show down. No, but, 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 but we're it though. We're, we're the shining light here. So, hey, good thing is we're living the good country. <laughs> Be happy you were born in communist China or, or Venezuela or, or North Korea. That is just, have you ever seen the videos out there, man? That is depressing to see that. So those are the books, also all the kind of books I've written about. So I have such a, such a huge, for almost, no, just did 60th, Jim Jones is my 60th book. I just did my 60th book in a little over a year. Uh, so it's, it's pretty cool. You can find it. Now I'm doing uh, the Audible books will be coming out. Uh, that should be coming out within a, a month on ATF Undercover. And then I'm doing more with Sean. Uh, we're just doing the one on mass shootings. We just started that one. So some of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history, and based on my background, solutions to that. I mean, that could be a show within itself. What, what what's going on in our country with mass shootings? That, that's depressing for me, and how we can stop them, and how, how what we can do. I, I don't know if you've seen the video or not, and I talked a lot of people about this. I've done shows about this. Ovalde, Texas, what happened? Rob Elementary. No, about, I haven't. Yeah, you have to look at the video. Seventy-seven minutes while the shooters in the classroom, killing. The students and teachers, while well, the police outside. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I've I've seen bits and pieces. Of you know, it. seen the whole thing. It, it 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 is really all of it's out there now. And what's really upsetting, and you got to watch this, and the audience should look at this. 
one of the officers, female officers, you know, they forget they have the body cams on, right? Right. And another guy was recording her because everybody has it on. And I guess she had her off, but he had his on. And they're outside. They are already, finally, the, the, it was the feds. It was the Border Patrol. The TAC, the TAC the unit came in there. And, and it wasn't the locals. They were the ones who went in there. And there were, I think they were like 15, 20 miles away. And they responded. And they're the ones that came in the classroom. And they're the ones that killed them, who killed the Ramos inside there. It wasn't the locals who stayed outside. Uh, she said, he said, hey, wasn't your daughter in there? And one of the guys was saying, no, no, my daughter's a VPK. But if my daughter was in there, I would definitely have gone in. Wow. Come on. My daughter was in there. But how, what, the other people's daughters wasn't, children weren't good enough to go in there? I mean, that's what you, you, you serve and protect. This is, this is what the call is about. When you got that kind of situation and kids are, are, are dying, that one, of the children, one of the girls was calling 911 saw her teacher get her head blown off, right? And the other students are dying, bleeding in there. It says, please come and help using the teacher's phone, right, to call 911. You stay outside the classroom because, oh, he's got a, a, a rifle. We have handguns. Uh, well, they have nothing, right? Go in there. Get a shotgun. You got shotguns. You got everything else. That's, those are the kind of things I talk about where you need people who are teachers who are willing to protect. Teachers are willing to die for their students. Some of them were shooting their students at the end, taking the bullets for their kids. They want to fight. And, and those, just like after 9-11, when we had the, well, after the pilots, right, taking over the airplanes, yeah. they had the option to be armed, right? We're, we're, we're to the point where we would probably have to do the same thing with administrators, teachers, the same thing because some police officers happened in Miami and Parkland. They stayed outside, right? And and and, uh, and Cruz ends up Nicholas Cruz ends up killing a lot of the students and teachers inside because he has a rifle, right? I understand it's not a fair fight. You have a handgun, he has better range, it's faster, and he's going through your, your body armor. But these kids have nothing, and the teachers have nothing. And right. staying outside, that's that's being a coward. Act, after shoot training, so you got two people in, you do and you address the guy because that's what that's what you're supposed to do. So. I address a lot of that. Books are going to be coming on Audible soon. It's already on that. And I, I talk a lot of scenarios, what we've learned, what we haven't learned, and the problems we have. And we may have to become more like Israel to protect ourselves if because the response time is too long. And if a lot of these places don't want you armed, well, then you have to do something about it because this, this doesn't end. We just had another one in, in Michigan State, right? It, it, it just seems like every week there's a new active shooter. As we speak right now, Matt, there's someone else who got triggered. It's going to do the same thing. Because we have yeah. a mental health crisis in this country that's unimaginable. And on top of that, easy access to weapons. That's that's the problem. That's another that's a, that's a depressing thing about 21st century America right now. And I put that in my book here. It's there's no solution because the only other solution is a good guy with a bad taking on bad guys with guns, right? Letting everybody be armed. And because in Indiana a few months ago, in a food court in a mall, a guy had armed himself in the bathroom. He started shooting. But somebody was was armed, could see a weapons permit, and addressed them, and killed them. Yeah, you never yeah, see that. You never see that video though. Yeah. That's not we'll the video they push. No, no, no. They gotta push other stuff. So those are things I want your audience to think about. Good conversations, serious topics we've taken on. But that's what I write about. Things are happening and solutions. My back, especially with ATF, my back with guns and stuff like this. It's really things that shouldn't be politicized by the right or the left. This is about us, right? Our family, because nobody wants their kids killed. Everybody wants to have their peace of mind. I have two daughters, safe at school. That's the worst case scenario. You get that call. School got shut down. A madman, it's, it's in the loose there. And they, they do nothing. Uh, Pulse nightclub. I mean, it's just case after case that police don't go in sometimes. Pulse nightclub, 
they spend like 12 hours. Well, he's, he's there, remember, in the gay nightclub? The guy yeah. who's shooting everybody in the gay nightclub? I mean, they, they, they wait for the SWAT team. Well, the people are in the bathroom, and he's lining up in the stalls. He's shooting everybody. Why aren't they going in? So it is just one after another, and and, you're, I, and I pick apart each one. So it's an interesting read, what we have to learn, what we have to do. And, and it's about people being armed. These gun-free zones, Matt, yes. the bad guys are going to victimize you because they, they're going to that doesn't change a fucking thing. No, they're going to be armed. They know that's easy, easy pickings. Because I've done a lot of shows with guys, and I'm, you know, just my own history group have a history, and that's what they look for. You know, they look for the bank that doesn't have the armed security guy, right? They, they they look for the place in the mall which is nobody armed, no policing, or the theater. These yeah. are things we have to prepare for. If you outlaw guns, like you know, outlaws, like you know, look, let, let's face it, criminals are not going to abide by that. No, they're not going to abide by that rule. Oh, we're not allowed to have the gun. Oh, well, then I won't. What are you talking about? But if you're willing to commit a mass shooting, you're willing to break the law, the gun laws, you know, and you're gonna. There's just too many guns. There's too. You'll never get rid of all the guns. No, we can't get rid of the guns. The United States is the biggest manufacturer of weapons in the world. Yeah, I mean, the Europeans have come here. I mean, you have Glock, used to be made in Austria. It's made in Georgia. Six Hour, which is made in Germany, it's made in the Northeast. H and K, also in Germany, made. They've come here because we're buying it all. America. I mean, I have my collection too. But you have to protect your family because if you expect call nine one one and the police to come save you from a home invader in your house, don't hold your breath. Yeah, no. Nah. You better get your concealed weapons permit. You better practice. And if you haven't shot your gun, and that's the first time you're going to shoot it, that's not the time to learn. You better be competent with it because it, you're going to be pumped. You're going to be drilling. You got some crazy coming at you. You better be ready how to use it and defend yourself. Because the worst thing is you see somebody do something bad to your family and you wish you could have stopped it. Those yeah. are just lessons. Just a, just a lesson for a guy who retired law enforcement, what I've seen, and hopefully people can learn and just pass in some wisdom on what we can do. All right. That's awesome, man. You re- are you you ready? Yeah, we're good. We good? Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, you mean, do a little, little, promo on some yeah i mean yeah absolutely i i usually say that you know obviously i'm gonna put we'll, we'll, colby which is anybody who watches this knows who colby is colby will put you know the the book links like if you send me the book links he'll put your book links um in the description oh great uh, of the of the video so people can just go to the description box you know they just hit the button and boom it'll have a whole list where they can just click on it and bring you straight to your amazon account or your awesome. you know, your amazon book and uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I since I have an Amazon author page with all my books, I'll just okay. send you the Amazon author page that I have. It's it's Better. a great one. So I let, let my I let the audience know also. I I do also have a uh, Amazon author page too. You can Google it. I'll go uh, obviously go on Amazon, which is my name. I think it's there, Ignacio Esteban, uh, and you can see all my books, sixty books, uh, from fiction to nonfiction. I'll, I also do fiction books also, which was fun uh, reads. I also do pictorial books. And uh, I think you'll really like, if you like organized crime, I have a lot to do. This is a true crime channel. I have a lot in organized crime. My personal experiences dealing with biker group, we haven't even talked about that yet. So that could be another show down the road if you want, doing the one percenters, doing the outlaws, the hell's angels, the Mongols. Um, I've done books on Yakuza. I've done books on LA gangs. I was in LA for eight months between the Bloods and Crips of Mexican Mafia. I've, I've done books on MS-13, Mana Salatrucha. So there's a lot of stuff here. If you like this stuff, obviously I've done books on, on uh, the mafia, Castro, the mafia, and the history of the mafia in, in, in Havana. The, the rise and fall of the mafia in Havana led to the rise in Las Vegas. 
I talked all the political side because of my family. They were there. They experienced it. And uh, you see it firsthand what's going on there. So a lot of cool things. Please look it up and have the audio stuff coming out on Audible, ATF Undercover. And hopefully they get the other books out there through Sean. All right. Yeah, we'll definitely have to do some of those. Like actually just do a show just on that one category. You know, yeah. on, on like one category of like the Yakuza. Do one on just like the biker gangs, like that sort of thing. That would be because we were kind of all over the place. But um, but yeah, that we could we could definitely do that. We that was fun. Hey, if you like the video, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you get notified of videos just like this. Leave me a comment in the comment section. Also, I am going to leave all of the descriptions. Uh, it, well, Colby's going to leave all the descriptions in the description box. And I really appreciate you guys watching. And also, I've written a, a, a bunch of books that are on uh, Amazon, Barnes and & Nobles, and Audible. And um, I'm even going to have Colby leave several of the um the trailers for the books uh right after this so you can watch the trailers for several of my books and go to amazon and buy a book or buy an audible or however you know or or not listen it's up to you whatever i appreciate you guys watching though and thank you very much leave me a comment and i will respond to your comments see ya using forgeries and bogus identities matthew b cox one of the most ingenious con men in history built America's biggest banks out of millions. Despite numerous encounters with bank security, state, and federal authorities, Cox narrowly, and quite luckily, avoided capture for years. Eventually, he topped the U.S. Secret Service's most wanted list and led the U.S. Marshals, FBI, and Secret Service on a three-year chase while jet-setting around the world with his attractive female accomplices. Cox has been declared one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time by CNBC's American Greed. Bloomberg Businessweek called him the mortgage industry's worst nightmare, while Dateline NBC described Cox as a gifted forger and silver-tongued liar. Playboy magazine proclaimed his scam was real estate fraud, and he was the best. Shark in the housing pool is Cox's exhilarating first-person account of his stranger-than-fiction story. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Bent is the story of John J. Boziak's phenomenal life of crime. Inked from head to toe, with an addiction to strippers and fast Cadillacs, Boziak was not your typical computer geek. He was, however, one of the most cunning scammers, counterfeiters, identity thieves, and escape artists alive and a major thorn in the side of the U.S. Secret Service as they fought a war on cybercrime. With a savant-like ability to circumvent banking security and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, Boziak made millions of dollars in the international cyber underworld with the help of the Chinese and the Russians. Then, leaving nothing but a John Doe warrant and a cleaned-out bank account in his wake, he vanished. Boziak's stranger-than-fiction tale of ingenious scams and impossible escapes of brazen run-ins with the law and secret desires to straighten out and settle down, makes his story a true crime con game that will keep you guessing. Bent, how a homeless teen became one of the cybercrime industry's most prolific counterfeiters. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Buried by the US government and ignored by the national media, this is the story they don't want you to know. 
When Frank Amadeo met with President George W. Bush at the White House to discuss NATO operations in Afghanistan, no one knew that he'd already embezzled nearly $200 million from the federal government, money he intended to use to bankroll his plan to take over the world. From Amadeo's global headquarters in the shadow of Florida's Disney World, with a nearly inexhaustible supply of the Internal Revenue Services funds, Amadeo acquired multiple businesses, amassing a mega conglomerate. Driven by his delusions of world conquest, he negotiated the purchase of a squadron of American fighter jets and the controlling interest in a former Soviet ICBM factory. He began working to build the largest private militia on the planet, over one million Africans strong. Simultaneously, Amadeo hired an international black ops force to orchestrate a coup in the Congo while plotting to take over several small Eastern European countries. The most disturbing part of it all is, had the U.S. government not thwarted his plans, he might have just pulled it off. It's insanity. The bizarre, true story of a bipolar megalomaniac's insane plan for total world domination. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Pierre Rossini, in the 1990s, was a 20-something-year-old Los Angeles-based drug trafficker of ecstasy and ice. He and his associates drove luxury European supercars, lived in Beverly Hills penthouses, and dated Playboy models while dodging federal indictments. Then, two FBI officers with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force entered the picture. Dirty agents willing to fix cases and identify informants. Suddenly, two of Rossini's associates, confidential informants working with federal law enforcement, were murdered. Everyone pointed to Rossini. As his co-defendants prepared for trial, U.S. Attorney Robert Mueller sat down to debrief Rossini at Leavenworth Penitentiary, and another story emerged. A tale of FBI corruption and complicity in murder. You see, Pierre Rossini knew something that no one else knew. The truth. And Robert Mueller and the federal government have been covering it up to this very day. Devil Exposed. A twisted tale of drug trafficking, corruption, and murder in the City of Angels. Available on Amazon and Audible. Bailout is a psychological true crime thriller that pits a narcissistic conman against an egotistical pathological liar. Marcus Shrinker, the money manager who attempted to fake his own death during the 2008 financial crisis, is about to be released from prison and he's ready to talk. He's ready to tell you the story no one's heard. Shrinker sits down with true crime writer Matthew B. Cox, a fellow inmate serving time for bank fraud. Shrinker lays out the details. The disgruntled clients who persecuted him for unanticipated market losses, the affair that ruined his marriage, and the treachery of his scorned wife, the woman who framed him for securities fraud, leaving him no choice but to make a bogus distress call and plunge from his multi-million dollar private aircraft in the dead of night. The $11.1 million in life insurance, the missing $1.5 million in gold. The fact is, Shrinker wants you to think he's innocent. The problem is, Cox knows Shrinker's a pathological liar and his story's a fabrication. As Cox subtly coaxes, cajoles, and yes, cons Shrinker into revealing his deceptions, his stranger-than-fiction life of lies slowly unravels. This is the story Shrinker didn't want you to know. Bailout, The Life and Lies of Marcus Shrinker. Available now on Barnes & Noble 
Etsy, and Audible. Matthew B. Cox is a con man incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for a variety of bank fraud-related scams. Despite not having a drug problem, Cox inexplicably ends up in the prison's residential drug abuse program, known as RDAP, a drug program in name only. RDAP is an invasive behavior modification therapy specifically designed to correct the cognitive thinking errors associated with criminal behavior. The program is a non-fiction dark comedy which chronicles Cox's side-splitting journey. This first-person account is a fascinating glimpse at the survivor-like atmosphere inside of the government-sponsored rehabilitation unit. While navigating the treachery of his backstabbing peers, Cox simultaneously manipulates prison policies and the bumbling staff every step of the way. The program. How a con man survived the Federal Bureau of Prisons' cult of RDAP. Available now on Amazon and Audible. If you saw anything you like, links to all the books are in the description box.